Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome, 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 everyone, to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today, I have Jeff Hubergs as a guest. Jeff is a medical doctor, plastic surgeon, fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, author of numerous scientific publications, PubMed, and popular articles, including five books, and is definitely a controversial figure in Belgium. One thing I want to start off with, and that's for all the people who saw you were going to be a guest at my podcast, they want to give you a sincere thanks for speaking up. Because a lot of people support you in your mission and say, like, thanks, Jeff, for speaking your mind and going against everything that's going on in Belgium. Yeah, thank you for the message. Uh, I consider it to be my duty. But anyhow, it's, it's good to be valued in that way. Do you think you are brave or do you think too many people are cowards? Oh, too many people are cowards, of course. There is no gravity in speaking the truth. I think lying is is much more disconcerting to the soul than speaking the truth. And so I, I really have a lot of compassion with people who feel limited or uh, impeded in speaking uh, the truth and how they perceive it, because it's the only way you can learn. It's by getting feedback from others. And the feedback has to come from something you have initiated. If you don't initiate anything, there can never be feedback. If you don't accept feedback, of course, you will end up with an educational impediment in the end. So, no, I'm not brave. I'm, I consider myself to be normal, but that's probably what every lunatic does. Well, is there not a sign of lunacy in everyone who's like standing up? I'm looking for the common signs of people who speak up against everything that's going on. And often a common theme that I see is, were you always... And also someone in your childhood or in education who was like asking questions, thinking critically, and the authority told you to shut up, sit down, don't ask those things. Was that also something that happened? Well, of course. I mean, uh, you're born and you come in this world uninvited. I don't know if you asked for it yourself. I mean, that is for everybody to, to answer themselves the question. But certainly the welcome they do in this world is not really sincere. The world isn't. 100% welcoming. And from very early stage onwards, I realized that the world and the others are always trying to enslave you and to have you work for them. And so you have to put your boundaries in place. And I wasn't particularly physically strong when I was young. I still have very ladylike hands, as a good surgeon uh, has to have. Mm -hmm. So they're not made for, for, for fighting. So I I learned to fight with my tongue from a very, very early age onwards. And I I only respect the truth. And I could only respect people to the extent that they themselves respected the truth. And I would be correcting teachers from from a very young age onwards. And I I think they they understood that they should leave me alone and they, they should not go too far. And that is the thing I'm saying about the truth. The truth is is very powerful. With the truth comes a sort of providence, a sort of protection. And the truth will protect the vulnerable. I'm very uh, convinced of that. It is the moment you start deviating from the truth that your uh, integrity is up for grabs and they'll finish you off. 
This is also something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn concludes in the Gulag Archipelago that, you know, evil will prevail if there's nobody speaking their truth anymore. And that it's like exposing lies and speaking your truth that you can counter totalitarianism. Yes, exactly. Well, totalitarianism is, is the grand scale embodiment of, of what, what everybody experiences from very early age onwards in, in, in very the close in, in even the closest circles. It will, even within family, you have these dynamics going on. And it is a way of separating the man from the boys, the sissies from the pustis, the, 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 the meaningful from, from the less meaningful. I mean, I think it's nature. Wasn't it exhausting to fight against those people who tell you to shut up and don't think for yourself and sit no, down? I think it, I, I, no, nothing is as exhausting as frustration. So what it what it did was it it relieved me of my frustration. It it gave me a great laboratory to experiment in. And I think it actually de-stressed me because, after all, I mean, you can't sail without winds, can you? If you're a sailor, you're not going to complain about the wind because even if it comes head-on, you can sail with uh, head-on winds. It's, it's perfectly possible. It's more work, but you can do it. You, you, you will make more progress with head-on wind than in, 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 a, in, in wind silence. And you're also someone who really values biology and looks at the dif differences between genders, let's say, like male and female, and what used to be like common sense, one of the most basic dichotomies in biology, when you would say some of the things you say, that will be like common sense. Or like, yeah, of course we're different, but we fast forward 20 years right now. And a lot of stuff that you're saying on a biologic basis, that creates a lot of controversy because now it's completely taboo to talk about this. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great pity, of course. You have to understand that you can break every law in the book, but you cannot break biological laws. Natural law, you cannot break. You have to comply with that. And how do you understand natural law? How do you understand that this is in part by studying uh, biology? Now, the bio biological intelligence, the biological IQ, is a different IQ from what we generally consider to be intelligence. After all, if you have an high, if they measure a high IQ, the only thing that signifies is that you're good at the solving of IQ tests. And they, in general, don't take into account biological insights because the people who made them don't have the biological insight and haven't got the biological IQ. Now, I'm blessed with a very high biological IQ, and that is hereditary. So I come from a long line of, of, of people who, who lived of manipulating biology. I'm talking about a, a great-grandfather who was a very successful food producer in the outskirts of Antwerp. And he did so by making the process of producing vegetables much more efficient than anybody else could do that. And how did he do that? That was by following his experience in view of an, of an elevated biological insight. So like you get teachers who teach uh, mathematics, who have a specific mathematical brain, like you have people who have a specific legal brain teaching law, we have neglected the biological intelligence and people who teach it and make the people who are not aware of it at least aware of the existence of, existence of these biological systems, these biological laws, which you have to comply with. And As a physician, as a surgeon, of course, nobody knows better than people who have to deal 
with health and disease. If, if you don't understand biology in patients, you're going to be a lousy doctor. It's as simple as that. So we needed to get good results. And I need good results because I'm not being paid by the government. I'm being paid by patients who pay with their own hard-earned money. So they expect results from me. And without biological insight, I could never produce the results they would be prepared to pay for. What really blows my mind is sometimes I spoke to new biology students and then they tell me like, yeah, sex doesn't exist. Or even in this crisis, I meet some doctors who don't ask any questions about what's going on or the biology of COVID and Corona. So one of the things that this crisis made me realize is we give a lot more credit to people who have a degree or who have a title and think they have a lot more expertise and knowledge than they have. Because how is this possible if you study biology and you're going to say there is no such thing as sex? Or how can you be a doctor and not look at PCR tests, the virus, like the, the population, and really investigate this? I would suspect that everyone should do this and look at this thoroughly. Well, of course you would. But this is exactly the problem that, that Ivan Illich exposed more than 50 years ago. Universities have become perversions of what they intended to be. They were intended to be a nourishing for the, for the brain and the soul and to, to put people into position with an elevated intellectual capacity. And what do they do now? They blunt them off and they fill them up with basically nonsense or, or falsehood. So the whole, the, the, and this is, this is what happens when the scale of society becomes too big. I described this in the 60s and, and it has only gotten worse. So one of the ways out of this, we're, we're nearing an end stage uh, grand scale civilization, like we've seen numerous times before. We saw this with the Aztecs, we saw this with the with the Romans, with the Egyptians. In fact, we saw this to a certain extent in, in, the, in the middle of the of the 20th century, when, when grand-scale provisions were, were, were falling apart and the thing was uh, overrun by a totalitarianism, where in the end, only the people who were self-sufficient in smaller, more human-scale communities did not suffer uh, famine. The rest, many have died just because the grand-scale system failed to even uh, provide them with essential food and shelter. So, and this is what we are heading for yet again. So it's not as if we're living in a, in a unique sort of paradigm. No, we've been there. We've had that. We know how this evolves and we know what we should do to survive this and how we actually should turn this into opportunity. Because let's face it, things are going the wrong way for decennia already. This was not sustainable, and everybody with brains knew this was not sustainable 25 years ago. What, not, what were some examples where you saw, like, this is not sustainable and it's going down? What are some elements of society where you see, like, oh, my God, it's going down? Here? Oh, the, the complete ridiculousness. For instance, it started economically with deviating from the gold standard. If, if, if you're going to create a financial uh, dealing system that is based on basically thin air, you know it's, it's, it's going to explode one day, and it did several times. Take the, the, the crisis of 2008, when all of a sudden construction came to, to a standstill in, in, in large parts of the world, because that, they thought that with all this sort of thumb money, the trees would grow into the, into the clouds, which they, of course, didn't. And, and we're basically we're still not, not out of that. And in fact, we're going 
we're, we're going to see that, that the financial capital will dwindle before our very eyes. If not, that you won't be able, even with all the money of the world, to buy the things you need, such as food. I mean, I remember very well a, a picture uh, from, the, from the Second World War from Holland, where a, a pint of lousy milk was traded for a pint full of gold coins. In lieu of perhaps 15 kilos of gold, they traded half a liter of milk, which goes to say that this financial wealth is only good for, for, for mercantile purposes, for trade. That's what money is for. But in the end, it will not give you food if there's no food in the shop, if there's no food available, if the farm doesn't want to, to sell it. So um, I experienced this very recently when I went to the Chinese bazaar, where I always buy my underwear, where they didn't have any stock anymore. And they sent me away with empty hands. So this is happening in front of our eyes, that the financial capital, which we thought was going to give us security, leaves us there standing with empty hands. And so this is what we have to think about very carefully because things are evolving very rapidly now. And this basically is the motive for the Great Reset of Klaus Schwab. I agree with that entirely. You, you don't have to be a, a genius to know that uh, things are not sustainable and things are going to go badly wrong and something will have to happen. Now, where I disagree with Klaus Schwab is that you need more of the problem because the problem exactly is the too big the scale and, and reliance on, on monetary wealth and capital, which in the end doesn't bring anything. The solution is downscaling and converting the financial capital, which basically we have been we, we, we have been celebrating like a golden calf. I mean, if you look at the Bible, there's, there's lots of similarities there. So if you see that capital and technology is being treated as a golden calf, it's going to be destroyed. You know, you read the Bible, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be, it will be destroyed. So and Klaus Schwab and, and these people are the last exponents of the false priests who, who think that's the way forward. Well, they won't be able to. We know, and why is it? They, they, they sincerely believe that. Back to square one. They have a biological IQ of minus zero. So it, they can't know because a technocrat and it has become a technocrat because of lack of biological IQ. Who the hell would go and spend his life in front of a computer screen if he had even the slightest notion of nature? He would, he would never be prepared to waste his life that way. And so this is the answer to many of the ills, and this is where we have to, to, get, to get back to, 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 to the size of, of human nature, of the human condition. And we have to start to put people in their right place on the basis of their skills, of their, ha uh, their skills in their hands, the intellect in their head and their insights, and the good morals in their heart. And you will see that if you judge people along those lines, all of a sudden, you will see that the, the slaves are now in authority and the princes are crawling through the dust, as is indeed said in the Bible, in the book of, of uh, preachers.
So it's it, not as if this is a surprise. It's not as if this has not happened before. It is not as if people have never thought about this. It's all there. It's for everybody accessible. And it's from the study of that, or if you, if you lack the capacity or the opportunity to study, then at least listen to people who have. And don't follow false priests, because also that is a malice that has been uh, corrupting societies since Young's. Yeah, that is what I'm, uh, you know, it's kind of like everything that's being portrayed is a bit like a Trojan horse to then smuggle in something else. And then what does a great set reset mean? It means you only reset something when something is destroyed. So you first have to destroy something. And some people say they realized in 2008 that people are seeing that the financial system is failing. So we have to have a crisis, blame it on a crisis to then say like, it's not because of the financial system, it's because of this crisis that we have to change it. And then in the end, the same people who created these crises are gonna take advantage of it to have more power, money, and influence. If you take a look at the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, if you look at the members, I think they need to have $3 billion on average capital. It's big capitalists who are going to say, capitalism doesn't work, we have to reinvent society, while they actually, during this crisis, have gained more power, influence, and money. No, because what all they have gained is financial capital, which in the end won't serve anything. No, I, I don't believe that. It's it's. I, do, I also don't think that they're, they're doing a lot. I, I I think they're foreseeing a lot because because they're in the middle of their financial things and they simply know that that it's it's end game. And but I don't think that. No, no. I, I think I think all these people tend to be conservative and 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 they don't like change. That is what stupid people always do. They they don't like change. Whereas intelligent people, of course, are always looking for change because they have the intelligence to see that that things are so far from perfect that things will better change for the better, and that you will have to put some energy into that. That's that's ultimately is the difference between intelligent and stupid. This is what is a difference between uh, man and animal. This is why man has a brain that has grown as the fastest growing evolutionary organ in the, in the history of the planet. It is because intelligent people change things for the better. That is the definition of intelligence. And of course, the conservatives who are against change are per definition inferior. Inferior in every sense, and they should not claim leadership. Can I, can I challenge that? In a way, conservatives is also upholding traditional values. And in a way, some traditional values right now with identity politics and other aspects, that's an aspect of being a conservative, upholding certain traditions, male and female roles, etc., that are being attacked by... Oh, uh, well, well, I'm not saying you have to, to, to throw away everything. Intelligence is knowing what should be changed. And if you know what should be changed, corollary is that you know what should be kept. So conservatism politically has nothing that doesn't come in the equation. I mean with conservatism is that people do, don't want to change their own position. They're too lazy, basically. It's like a sailor uh, who is on the ocean who is too lazy to change the position of his rudder and his, and his sail when the wind changes. Right? That is conservatism. That you will be so inactive and that you will be continue your um, behavior in different circumstances. And so, of course, you, 
what, what is survival of the fittest in Darwinistic terms? It's survival of the most adaptable. What is adaption uh, or, or adaptation? That is exactly what is intelligence. That is changing what needs to be changed and keeping what is going to be useful. And this insight, for that you need of one thing, biological intelligence. Because but, but when we're going to use biological intelligence, one thing that also blows my mind, you talk about survival of the fittest and what's happening right now seems to allocate all resources to protect the most vulnerable or the weakest. When yeah. we take a look at Corona, who's dying? They have three to four underlying illnesses. They are 80 plus years old. Yeah. I mean, you can also mention it maybe to my audience, how much money is being spent of healthcare on like the last years or the last six months of the population. Oh, you know? more than half. More than half is more being- More than half of the resources we put in medicine is in people in the last six months of their life. That's, how is this, propor what, this proportionality, this like, yes, you want to protect well, the mean, vulnerable, but to make this yeah. the ultimate goal of a society yeah. and then sacrifice yeah. Yeah. everything, yeah. this is untenable. But, but, but then we, we come to the basis of, of the falsehood of democracy in the sense of one man, one vote. Democracy as it was intended in, in, in Greece, that was that, that the different tribes would delegate one elder who, who they considered most fit to represent their interests at the higher level. It wasn't that everybody got a vote. The moment they gave everybody a vote, and you have to understand that the majority of people simply do not, are not capable of taking leadership. So if democracy is the leadership of the people, then the people should first decide within their own circles who has the best interest and, and the best capacity to, for them, decide what is the correct leadership. And how do you define that? Because often people define that by your degree. But what we notice right now with professors and doctors, just no. having a degree doesn't no. necessarily mean that you're meant of to be a leader not. or a good of leader. Course, but, but that is all the grand scale. That is all the grand scale perversions. Uh, read uh, Ivan Illich on this one. No, that how you do this. Well, first, first you will have to see that what what does totalitarianism do? They they keep on misleading the public with this idea of one man, one vote democracy. And in that way, they have to, of course, talk to the, to the ears of the people who are too lazy and too stupid to do anything and to, 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 are too naive to discern lies from the truth. And so this is, at the moment, you say one man, one vote doesn't work, that you will get the whole globalistic community over, over you because this is exactly what got us into the shit. And this is what they want to protect. So they want to now be seen to protect the what they call vulnerable. Now, the vulnerable don't want money. The vulnerable needs opportunity. The vulnerable needs self-sufficiency. The vulnerable, as the, the intelligence, needs the truth. You don't, you're, certainly you're not going to lie to the vulnerable. Lie to the wealthy. Then that's their problem. To the vulnerable, you don't lie. You speak the truth. And so this is where it all goes wrong. It's a perversion. Read Ivan Illich. It is a complete perversion. And the perversion is due that the scale of organization has far outgrown the biological tribal scale for which we are genetically prepared. We are tribal animals. We're not individualists, but we are not globalists either. We are tribal our genes have made ourselves fit for communities of somewhere between 100 and 200 people. And this is the, the basic unit. 
Uh, you could translate Darwinism for Homo sapiens, for mankind, as survival of the fittest is survival of the members of the fittest tribe. This is the essence. And the globalism, how strange it sounds, has come to pass by too much individualism. And it will now use individualism to push its agenda through. And in the end, people will simply die. As they have always done before in end-stage, grand-scale civilizations who came to an end. Can you elaborate this, that you say it's because of individualism? Because people think, when they think of globalism in terms of worldwide citizens, you know, and connecting and sustainability of the community and world. So how does individualism contribute to the agenda of globalists? Because they have to sell, they have to go and steal the money and to steal the liberties of people on the premise that by stealing your liberties, they will help the vulnerable individuals because it's not your tasks to help your... If your neighbor is vulnerable, then it's your duty to help him. It is not the duty of the globalist Klaus Schwab to come and help my neighbor from the other side of the world. It's not his duty. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. It's a lie. One of the things that I ask questions about is you seem to be a bit like maybe negative in the short run, but positive in the in the long yes, run, absolutely. that they are too big to fail. But when I take a look at the increasing means, especially to technology of manipulating people, their perception of what they're allowed to see, their reality and their behavior, aren't the means of manipulating people, brainwashing people, indoctrinating people on a scale that was never there with the Aztecs, Egyptians, the Romans. So that's a bit what I struggle with to see. Uh, Can't but, I mean, no, exactly. I mean, this is going to be a big selective process. Like any end-stage civilization has been a grand-scale selective process. This will not be any different, don't you think? And all these people who adhere to technology as the saving grace will end up jumping out of the window of their 10th floor flats from behind their screen in complete schizophrenia and depression and completely deprived of any common sense and material goods to survive. It's the people who go away from their screens, who, who, who reject technology for what it is completely useless. And one of the things is having their brains washed by technology and who are going to get with their feet in the ground again, who will embrace the grass and the trees, who will look at the sun for what it is, and to look at each other and humankind in their own scale, with their genes and their brains, what they're equipped with, and to share their differences and to share their, how do they call it now, diversity in groups for the common small-scale tribal good in the first instance. And these tribes then can delegate their, their uh, interests to one elder, like it used to be before. I mean, as long as we know of civilizations, and this is more than 10,000 years now, it goes back to the Stone Age, people have been delegating their interests to the wise men in the, in the, in the group. Tribes are run by on the one hand, the wisdom, and on the other hand, the blunt force, the wise priests and the military. But they're separately. And when there is a conflict between the two, it's the wisdom that takes the superiority. The army listens to the wisdom. The money is even a caste below that. 
In the end, the military is much more powerful than the money. But still, the military needs a moral compass from people who know, a moral compass from the truth. And this is what, what should be done in this small-scale tribal system and be taken up progressively into, into larger-scale connections, which, because of technology, we could decide to cultivate or not, but stop to make yourself, to see yourself dependent on it. Because as long as you see yourself dependent on technology, you are gonna die. Because this is something that I think when they're gonna do a reset, I'm more thinking in terms of like a great revival and rescue great ideas from the past, great values, things that make us human. When I take a look at what the great reset wants, they say they want to stand up for humanity, but actually go against human nature and take away all these fundamental things that make us human. Touch, laugh, play, art, thinking, freedom of speech, all these things that make us uniquely human. It's not going to work. It's as simple as that. Don't be misled. It is impossible. It will be just one symptom, one sort of phase. The decaying grand-scale society will die off. And what will come out of this as a phoenix will yet again be a system of social organization in line with the human condition and the, the scale it is made for. It's a natural law. With no money on earth, with no technology in the world, you can break natural laws. You will see that. You have that famous meme which has like hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. I know you also talk about the current generation and the masculinity and how strong they are. Isn't that also making it more difficult to have not so much strong masculine men who stand for something? How are you looking at the current generation of people? It's all a perversion. It's all a perversion. I mean, it, it, they, they will either grow some, some testicular fortitude or perish. It's natural law. Do you think these people that are behind this or have a certain agenda, do you think they will live to just get away with everything that they're doing? Or will that be kind of like lynching and trials and in, in this lifetime? Klaus Schwab is over 80. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the chance that he lives tomorrow slightly gets smaller than the... Sh the but they're the supporting transhumanism, so maybe they will find a chip or whatever. Yeah, I mean... I don't think we should be too much concerned with it. We should be warned that they have an unnatural sort of voice and an unnatural sort of power in the mind of stupid people. And it is very, very temporary. I, I see it as a small detail. Again, what will capital buy if there's nothing in the shops? I mean, how, how did Rome come to an end? I mean, it's a very short space of time. It's a few decennia. Eh? And what is the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem is that they start with the system of, of the tribal proficiency, and then they start to plunder, because they're more efficient also in warfare, they start to plunder other regions. Then, of course, that plundering, that is not very, plundering is not a sustainable way of making money. Uh, so that comes to an end rather quickly, and then they, they enslave the, a part of the population or, or, or a population they captured, and they make the slaves do, do the chores, and, and, and the initially, the, say, the grandchildren of the, of the tribal man, they, they do nothing. And in the end, of course, 
the slaves know everything because they have to do everything. And the people that are in power don't know anything anymore because from birth they haven't been doing anything and they've never been living in reality. So they never, even if they had a biological intelligence, they had never the chance to develop it and to get it into a, in, into a useful situation. So within a, in the space of a, a maximum of two generations, these things come to an end. And what do we see now in Western society? Like 30 years ago, we plundered Africa. We, in fact, we plundered the labor of the Far East. We, we stopped making things ourselves and we were importing a cheap workforce. I mean, we're now at the stage that if you want to have a new bathroom installed in your house, you will have to, to look for Polish people because you just simply will not find a Belgian person or a Belgian group to make you your, uh, a good bathroom for a reasonable price. So... I mean, it's it's a form of slavery, isn't it? Just, I mean, this is end-stage civilization, my friends. We've been there, we've had there, we know how this goes. Yeah, you can you can only control society so much, right? You talk a bit about natural selection. In a way, it's like it's inevitable. You can try to put biology away and evolution away, but in a way, it's inevitable that there will be some kind of shifting of the people who survive and don't survive. What do you think of the thesis that some of these people behind this? they would love the world population to go a bit down because they need less and less people. They have more technology, they have the wealth. So everything that has to do with the no gender agenda, the, the, the testosterone levels in boys going down, we don't know what's in these experimental gene therapies. I'm going to call them that way and not with the name that the media calls them. So what do you think that those people in power, they actually don't need so much people anymore. It's too difficult to manage. So they also want to have a kind of selection. Of course, they try it. They try it. And of course, it's a problem. Because why? First, you make something that doesn't work. And then you say, well, it doesn't work. So we're too many people. No, no, no. And this is stupidity. This is why they don't. These are, these are big children. They have money, but they have no brains. Very rarely, money and brains go hand in hand. Because money somehow seems to corrupt the brain. And the real brain stops making money when he has enough. So money and brains, I have rarely seen this come together. And so what are they? There are low cost of people who have low cost solutions. Regardless, they may have all the money in the world, but they're still low cost. Their solutions are non-solutions and they're ridiculous sort of nutcases. That's what they are. And so what is the answer? The answer is to simply ignore them, to understand, yes, there is a problem. If you fly over, well, it's now a bit more difficult, but if you fly <laughs> over the Earth for crying out loud, the Earth is so big, so vast. If you know how much produce you can make on one hectare of land, there is plenty of resources in the world for everybody. But we have to organize them properly. We have to organize them in tribal, human-scale systems with local authority. We have to get this big centralized nutcase laws out of the way. We are going to give technology the rightful place, which is very small. And we're going to go back to the human scale. We are going to go back to our own very genetics in harmony with the planet they are developed in. And we will be, yet again, the survive as the fittest, of members as members of the fittest possible tribes. That is the way forward. Do you think there's any means to politics 
or law, because I know we could talk a bit later about the Belgian state having to abolish the rules or change the law. We saw the same thing in the Netherlands with the even clock being illegal, but then another judge above said like, no, it's fine. I know advocate Fulmich is now going to try to hold a Nuremberg 2 trial. What do you think of the chances of succeeding and getting some victories through the law system? It's all irrelevant because the law system, again, is made for the grand scale. It's out of scale with human proportion. Mm. So this is the essential difference that every law student will learn in his first years of learning. That is the difference between natural law and positive law. Positive law is what you write on paper, right? And it should be in line with natural law. This is again where your biology comes in. This is again where the human scale comes in. This is again where fundamental intelligence comes in. Natural law is a given thing. We have it inside us from the moment of conception, right? Now, what is the message to the first-year student? That the positive law, the thing you put in writing, should be working uh, in harmony with the natural law, which is innate in every single human being, right? Why is that? Because if you don't, then natural law will overtake. Because natural law always has the last words. You can break any law in positive law. You cannot break successfully for long-term natural law. This is why they say, for instance, vox populi, vox di. The voice of the people is the voice of God. The voice of the people is in what is in their genes. And this is, of course, how things are going to fall completely apart in no time. You will see this. Yeah, I think in the past it was what is in their genes. And now it's mostly their smartphone, which is in their genes. (laughs) When we take a look now at the lack of social activism, the lack of bottom-up movement, the the waiting for people to finally get their freedoms back, what is happening with this current generation that is not standing up, is not gathering, is not protesting, is not creating communities? Why is there this lack of constructive movement to actually take charge? We're again seeing it out of human proportion. You have to take those kids put them into a tribal system, make them work and produce their food and have, uh, have and, and make them go through the hierarchy in a tribal system and they will be perfectly functioning because there's absolutely nothing wrong with their genes. But of course, if you put them in a grand scale system, you deprive them from all decent natural education. You fill their brains with a sort of hypnotizing cell phone business, they may come out handicapped. They will never grow out to be fully-fledged leaders. But then again, we don't need that many leaders in a tribe. We, we also need a lot of people who simply do their thing and listen to the one who knows better and be valued for what they do. If not with their brain, then with their hands or with their heart. Now let's talk a bit about what you came in the news for a lot of the times. Everything that you said about uh, Corona and COVID and has been going on. Could you as a doctor explain a bit what you know right now about the PCR tests, the masks, the lockdown and the vaccines being run out from your perspective as like a doctor? What, what is going on with the PCR tests, the lockdown, the vaccines? Like, What is your 
view of everything that's been going on. To sum it up in one word is it has no scientific basis. It is not medicine. It is contrary to all medical knowledge and culture. It's also not practiced by doctors. I mean, I, I don't know of a single decent doctor who actually cures people who supports this. There's unfortunately, in the grand scale system at the university, a lot of people have got a medical degree who lack all biological intense intelligence, but who also lack morals. And, and, and of course, in, in a human scale system, they would never be mandated with a medical mandate. But the doctors who now speak for this are not proper physicians. They are not ethical. They are just bribed by a system, or they la- they fundamentally lack the capacity. They shouldn't have had a, uh, shouldn't have gotten a degree in the first place. What is a bribing system exactly in the doctors? Is it just you know the fear of being character assassinated, or do they get some extra subsidies for lost patients because some people maybe are afraid to go to the doctor because I'm just well, you're, you're, the governments in most countries are hiding behind so-called experts, and of these experts, most of them are not doctors. They're statisticians or veterinary surgeons, vets or whatever, mathematicians, whatever. I mean, they have nothing to do with 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 medicine in the first place. If there is a doctor here or there, you see that they come from, that they're often virologists, which is basically a lab technician who has been uh, working for Big Pharma. Because the only thing they have been paid with is a little bit of public money uh, in some cases, but the bulk of their income is from big pharmaceutical companies who need them to make pharmaceuticals not for curing humanity, no, no, just to up the, the, the value of the shares and to pay up the shareholders more money. That's it, their businesses. Very big business. So and we know that we know the experts, how they receive the money, how how much it is. Even it, it goes into hundreds of millions of dollars that flow from the Bill Gates Foundation to the Belgian experts, without exception. There's not a single expert in Belgium who is not directly or very closely related to funds that came from the Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation, who are then in turn uh, majority shareholders in the WHO who in turn, in fact, have taken the sovereignty from the government. So it's one big grand scale hoax, a desperate attempt of hijacking medicine for what they think is going to be the solution to what they know is totally unsustainable. Do you have the same view then? Because I also want to clear clear up misconceptions some people might have. You do admit that there's something as corona or coronaviruses or rhinoviruses. I heard that it's there since the 60s. So you're not denying that there is a virus or a rhinovirus. It's been there much longer. Probably the the coronaviruses are probably much older than humans themselves. They've been circulating throughout nature probably for for millions of years. We, We first identified them in the 60s because we then had an electron microscope and we could go and look at these particles. And so we defined in, in this time. And then we, since then, we know that coronavirus is participant in about one in five of the seasonal flu conditions, which, may, may, which are manifold. Eh? There are many diseases that qualify under seasonal flu conditions. One of them is lethal, or more, uh, some of them are lethal. But the, the, the viral distribution between those is always the same. And so a 20% corona. So they knew that exactly. I mean, they knew that they were going to choose corona because they had the best chance of all viruses that it would be a, a coronavirus. But it is still only one in five. If, you, if you're going to do your, your tests properly, you'll only find one in five. You'll, in fact, in the half of the patients, you won't even find a virus associated with the cause of death. 
That's very disconcerting. And now, of course, they have these PCR tests that are fundamentally 100% malleable and manipulative. So you can make anybody positive for whatever you like. You can make your your, your bread toaster positive. You you can make your sense. You can make your head positive. Uh, You can make the arse of your dog positive. You can make positive whatever and whoever you like. Probably with an anal swab than for the dog. Yeah, well, that but that is very disconcerting, of course, because it's this manipulation of these tests has gotten the stupid people into the mode they have. And they're after all the justification of all the so-called figure porn that is being produced by the media. Yeah, How can these people not be held for trial? I sometimes see people like claiming, claiming, claiming numbers in the media that are not there. Like I saw like this week, like a hospital is almost full. And then people from the hospital said like, that's not true. Then you have these inflated numbers from the person of Imperial College, Neil Ferguson, like he was wrong so many times. So how can the people get away with actually numbers that are not back? That is lying. That is actually official lying. It's fraud. No, it's not lying. It's fraud. It's much worse than lying. It's fraud. It's, It's positive fraud. And, and fraud with genocidal consequences. Is there no law that you can hold, hold them accountable? Because I'm no, just astonished. What, no, in the, they, have, they have perverted all the positive laws. Billions of dollars have been spent in perverting these laws because they were in place. We had the human rights. We had the performance judicial systems. They have all bribed these to bits. In the case of the medical health, it's a WHO. They have made people and governments sign conventions that sign away their sovereignty. So what? It's positive law that goes against natural law. You know what I think about that. eh? Watch this space. And they also say that, as lots of numbers, that 98% of the flu has disappeared. So when you talk to people like, yes, but the mask and the lockdown, they stop the flu, but they don't stop corona. So what's going on here then? Well, well, here, this is the, 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 the typical semantic confusion. Flu is a, is a disease. And the disease of flu, it's, it's fever with muscle ache, with perhaps a sore throat. And that is the flu. And the flu, is, as a disease, is organized by a multitude of viruses or other organisms or things we don't know, right? Of which 20% are corona. Now, influenza virus is one of the agents that are caused, that are associated with the disease flu in like say 10% or 15%, and the various types, A and B and parainfluenza, whatever. Now, where is the problem? The problem is that people confuse the disease flu, which has a multitude uh, of causations and which more has more to do with the response of the immune system than with the virus, which they called the f- influenza. Before they had the electron microscope, they blamed it on a, a bacterium, which had nothing to do with it, the poor innocent soul. They called it Haemophilus uh, influenzae, how stupid they are. As if every flu said, they, they had this stupid, desperate attempt to find cause for what they thought was one disease. It's not. The cause, the fundamental cause of the disease is an, is an immune regulation. That is the fundamental pathogenism. Is that and it can be set off by, by, by a number of viruses. It is, these viruses are contagious. And it also, in a number of cases, and half of them, is set off by we don't know. And this is what scientists have to do. They have to produce the word we don't know, as if we now know everything. It's, it's a stupidity. And so, yes, what Raoul has, has, has seen is that the 
Lockdowns have worked against the spread of the non-coronaviruses associated with the flu. But they have enhanced the spread of corona because the corona seems to be the more aggressive of them. And of course, the spread didn't happen in the community, did it? The spread happened in where people with compromised immune systems come together, in old people's homes, in full trains, in big markets, in carnivals. But does it matter? Because who says it's so bad to get the flu? Many people think that the flu is an essential bit of keeping our, our immune system up to scratch. So there is no scientific basis to aim for the eradication of the disease flu. I mean, nobody can make a point for that because nobody knows what the result would be. And in fact, it appears to be wholly impossible. You can change a bit the viruses you can measure, but you don't change the mortality, you don't change the incidence, or you do it for a very short space of time, and we will have to see what happens after that. This is what I'm interested about, about your opinion. Normally in the past, we had like a vaccine and it used still the immune system of people. We've been developing in symbiosis with bacteria and viruses for a very long time. Could you explain a bit how, I'm not going to call them vaccines, I'm going to call them experimental jabs or gene therapies. How do they work? And are there some danger into this working with messenger RNA and not following the traditional way how vaccines work? I like conservatism when it is appropriate. Mm -hmm. I don't want to change, destroy everything. And the one thing I didn't want, which I hate to destroy it, is the, the legal system of good clinical practice, mm -hmm. whereby there is, a, if you want to, to sell a pharmaceutical product in any way for, for health purposes, you have to, by law, go, go through a set stage of the trial of the, of the product. And you start with defining what it is you want to cure, why you want to cure it, and how you expect it to, to, be, it to be better than the available alternatives. That is always the first stage. Well, these questions have never been answered in the case of a vaccine against the disease flu, very simply, because it's not a single causative agent. So... If you make a, a disease against a virus, then you will take only out 20% of the affected people because you know that the other are not due to that virus. So for 80%, it will not be relevant. So if you, if you would go through that system of analyzing it, well, you would never get a permit to try this on people, would you? You would, even, you would never be subsidized to even try it on animals because the fundamental aim of it is false. What I do know is, understand the difference between a vaccine as it eradicated the pox, for instance, because the pox were one specific causative agent and the disease was very defined. And there was a direct link between the, cause, between the single causative agent and the disease. This is how you use a vaccine. Now, you should not abuse that term and sell it as if it was something like that. No, because... We're not talking about a single agent. We're not talking about a well-defined disease. And we're, we haven't got any decent scientific data available. On the contrary, the data we have scientifically available are a bit, to, to put it very euphemistically, less than 100% encouraging. Let's put it that way. 
Could you explain it to listeners and viewers maybe how the new way of this gen therapy or messenger RNA is different from a tra traditional vaccine? Because well, not all the vaccines are messenger RNA, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Moderna, well, modern well, RNA. Let's, let's, let's be clear about that. Uh, well, the messenger RNA has been tested on cats against corona. There are experimental data on animals, what it will do. And, and there's people much more qualified to talk about that issue than I am. But uh, I'm not allowed to say that this is not a good idea. Mm, okay. I want to end a bit with also court case that you have against sexism for speaking out at the fraternity meeting. Could you share a bit what happened there and why it was such a controversy? Well, I learned a lot in the process. Uh, I, went, I was invited by a university band in, in, in the University of Ghent, which is a very leftish sort of university. Again, one of these perversions of, of grand scale. All the people who work there are intellectually impaired. Uh, this is the impression I have, at least. Uh, I haven't seen a single decent intellectual coming out uh, yet. And it, it's, it's a poison sort of very extreme left-wing communists are grouping together within the university circles, within the student bands. Uh, there are, I think, three different important communist movements inside the University of Ghent. Imagine this. I, I, I didn't know this was possible until I went to talk there. So I just had one of my talks, uh, which basically was human biology, and which, because these uh, students had asked me to talk about it and, and asked me specific questions in this, in, in this direction, was the difference between women and men, and how one should socially prepare for this distance in the view of making children and, and getting your life on the tracks in these very confusing ages, which I thought was a very valid sort of request from young people who are trying to get their brain and their life uh, in order. Yeah, one epic statement that you say there is behind every successful man are three hot women. Now, <laughs> it's, a bit, <laughs> it's a bit controversial, but you have something called hypergamy where women date up the success ladder and oftentimes women are with a much more successful man. So it might be controversial to say it, but often when you take a look at the partner of women and the stable relationships, it's often women who are with a more successful man. Well, more successful men are just simply more desirable. There is plenty of evidence to, to show that there is a, a, a fundamental difference between desirability of a man and of a woman. I mean, this goes back to human biogrammatics. I mean, I can talk very long about that. Perhaps in my next book, I, I will expand on it because I'm not the first one who addresses this. I mean, I've, I've, I've come across uh, very good writers uh, 300 years ago uh, from the from the French schools, even before the French Revolution, who really analyzed this problem in a very intellectual way. But there is, a, of course, there's a, there's a fundamental difference in, in social functioning and, and, and for that matter in brain functioning between men and women, if you look at it as average data. Of course, these two will, will fluctuate, yeah. overlap in, 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 in many circumstances and, and they're not sweeping statements with what we're talking about is sort of general sort of insights. They're part of biological intelligence. They're part of, of proper natural culture. And they're very useful in order to uh, judge one another because people are judging one another all the time. And you have to simply judge different actions in different people differently. And, and you, you'll need a, a sort of intellectual compass for that judgment. And, and all that contributes to it. But uh, no, of course, the beauty of the man in a, in a large extent is into the, the size of his wallet, 
where the beauty of the woman is in, in, her, in her procreative potential. I have written books about this for, for many years. I'm not the only one who, uh, I mean, this, this is going around for centuries and, 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 and there's even scientists who have to try to really break this down to, to one or two factors only. And, 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 and in my mind, intellectually successfully. I will share that with you in the next book. I, I think it's important. Just one of the ways that really helped me understand things, I'm not a determinist, but it made me see the basic dichotomies in nature and men, masculine, feminine, is one of the basic dichotomies in nature. So I had the book, We Are Our Bane by Dick Schwab and other ways, you know, even now we try to act like we're not animals, but if you see people that are much in their fear, in their hypothalamus, in their amygdala, so for me, it doesn't mean it's like you have no free will and it's determined. Almost everything is a gene-environment interaction. But to understand fundamental differences in nature, it helped me understand reality. It helped me understand the differences. Of to course. throw this away and make everything subjective, it sounds good. You can choose everything, but it created chaos. I couldn't understand the world. I was seeing how men and women acted in general, but still a lot more in general, like in this feminine way, in this masculine way. So for me, it was immensely useful to learn about this. Well, and the strange thing uh, about this, Philip, is I, I'm now in the process of studying prehistoric communities. And you see that this fundamental uh, dichotomy you talk about between men and women actually increase as the, the size of the settlements increase. Mm -hmm. So it is actually the globalization uh, actually enhances this. Whereas if we saw where in the, in the small Celtic communities, uh, that were fundamentally tribal, women had a much more equal position than they had in the subsequent Roman Greece of that matter in our great civilization. Because in the natural way of living, in the harmonious way of living with nature, there is in fact less discrimination between the sexes. Women are also much stronger. They're much more athletic. They're, they're, they're good hunters, they're good soldiers. There were probably as many uh, female druids than there were male. In fact, there is evidence that in a given time, the uh, spiritual authority was uh, completely uh, seized by the women, which then again caused some problems. It's all speculative. But what we have to do is try to put these pieces together, which we have from a historic point of view, but not just that. Yeah, because yeah. some people would paint you, and I don't see you that way, but that's like, oh my God, look at Jeff. He's a sexist pig. He thinks oh. women are inferior, but I think you just look at it in a biological way. No, and, and on the contrary, I, I must admit that in the first place, 80% of my patients are female. So, I mean, how could I be possibly hating what is the love of my profession? That to start with, apart from that, I was blessed with a, with a very creative mother who, who actually allowed me to, to develop certain aspects of my personality in, in almost complete liberty. I was married to my first marriage, a, a very supportive wife, without whom I would have never become a plastic surgeon. She, she was followed up by another long-term relationship, another good wife who, who also got me and, and supported me to a great extent without whom it was, would never have been possible to do my my, my father's thought. So I'm indebted to women very much. I'm the first one to testify to that. But they were all women who understood their limitations and who did never have aspirations to be a second-class man. They were all women who aspired to be first-class women. 
How was the relationship when you grew up with your dad? Because oftentimes one of the things that you also talk about is children being raised without a dad and from single parent. Well, not just without a dad. What a child needs is loving fatherly protection. Think about this very carefully. So a child needs the emotional stability of a lovingly present father. If not, he, will have, he or she will be handicapped for the rest of his or her life. Handicapped in the sense they'll be haunted by mental chaos. Because as the father gives the ultimate love and protection, also against the mother, if it comes to it, that's very important. He also conveys the concept of the definitive no. When a loving biological father says no, it will never change. Everybody knows that. And there will be no discussion. And the child who feels loved will immediately comply. He will more than comply. It will put his mind to ease so it can develop its things in harmony with the rest. And it gives the man, it opens up, it frees up the mental capacity, capacity for constructive thought rather than wasting it in confusion. So my, my father was, was, had Asperger's syndrome. He, he, he was sort of slightly in the autistic uh, spectrum disorder, but that didn't make him heartless. On the contrary, he was a very loving man. And although he was not very fluent in interaction, he would always defend me against my mother, who was slightly less white in heart. And that has been my saving grace. If it hadn't been for my father, I would have been as confused as anybody else. What would you have lacked if your father wouldn't be there? Like, I, I, would, just... I, would, have been, I, I would have never survived the chaos that then would follow in my brain. Or I would have survived it in a, in a very malignant way. You know what's good that you say? It's about protection and it's about saying no and setting boundaries. Because people say like loving, protective, sometimes the most loving and protective thing you can do is say no and refuse people things because people mistake this like, no, you just always have to love them and always say yes. But that no. is a mistaken definition of love and protection. Of course, and that is a typical female misconception. This is why, this is why in the end, the father is the primary parent for the, for the well-being of the, for the future well-being of the child. I, I have tested this hypothesis on more than 30,000 patients. And no, uh, I'm, I'm ready with that. It is very difficult to to do it in proper scientific studies because nobody will give you funds to actually study this. If, if somebody in the university says, I want to study this, on the hypothesis that the, the, the father is the more important, they will not get funds. Yeah, that's also why I'm like you. I value truth so much. You also had uh, people, I mean, you could debate like IQ, but you know, you had the Nobel Prize winner who got the prize for investigating IQ. If you're going to search for the negative effects of being raised by a single mom, I mean... I just want to know. I want to understand. If you understand well, cancer, <laughs> if, 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 if you understand cancer, you don't want more cancer, right? You just want to treat cancer and you want to find yeah, a way no, how no, to it, look it, at it. There yeah. are a number of grand scale studies that support is far too few. There could be many more because you could easily, easily and with very uh, modest amounts of money prove this. The problem is you will not get funds. They will find it unethical. It is not 
the, the, the speed. But yes, in indirect studies, for instance, executive performance, which is one of these parameters that they use in psychology, you see that the executive performance of children who are raised uh, with only the father is even better than the executive performance for children which are, have been raised by the two, because most people will agree that being raised by a single mom is less than perfect, but most people will think that they're, they're both equally important. Well, that study showed that they're not. And why is that? Because if you have a couple raising a child, you have got a decent chance, and I would say a three in 10 chance, that the mother is overpowering. And she actually stands in as, a, as, a, as an obstruction between the protective love of the father and the child. And you can actually, if you quietly sit in a, an attraction park, something like Alton Taz or, 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 do I know, or, or Disneyland, and you see these couples, father and mother and the children, and then you see if you observe them, and it, you don't need to observe them very long. Within two, three minutes, you'll have an example. Then you see this instinctive urge of, uh, particularly of girls, but also of boys, to approach their father. And then you'll see in a number of cases, immediately this mother, like a jealous duck, diving in between and putting them apart again. It's sickening. If you, once you realize it, it's bloody sickening. And, and I have felt that at, at times to intervene. Uh, I think I even have done it sometimes. When mothers misbehave in such a way, where fathers stand there like a castrated donkey, having all this filth thrown over them in front of their children, well, I, I don't hesitate actually to intervene. Why do they do that? Is it, is, it, is it subconscious? Is it because they've been told to be an independent woman? Because it's not really natural for a woman to then become... Well, well the positive law has, of course, privileged women. I mean, they're always talking about uh, female rights, but the fact is that men are much more discriminated against the positive law than women. In Can Belgium, you talk a bit more about that? Because, again, people would listen like, no, we live in a patriarchy and, you know, women no, are no, disprivileged. No, 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 no. No, no, it's, it's still the men who bring in the, the bulk of the money and still of the taxes and still the women who spend the bulk of it. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. But there's also law. I mean, if you go to, to a family court in the case of, of, of a divorce, I mean, in the end, when there is an, an insoluble conflict between father and mother, it is always, in 100% of the cases, the mother who wins. And it's against the interest of the child. All these, all these judges there are females. I don't know of a, of a single male family judge in Belgium. They, are, they, are, they all have run away in horror. All the, all the advisors, all the social workers are all women. So there is a very, in the school of my, my son, the parent council, they're all women. I mean, it is scandalous. It is absolutely scandalous. And it, it's no excuse to say that, that men are not allowed. No, the point is, Men are completely lambasted and they have the law against them. Because if you say so much as boo to a woman, they'll report you to the police and you'll get sanctioned. You see how they're trying to intimidate me just to have a natural law scientific lecture in a university which has been recorded behind my back and then deliberately distributed in false, out-of-context quotes by an extremist feminist organization and is now paid with tax money, of which the majority is paid by men, to get me into court as an example. This is how men are discriminated against. If this happened to women, the other man would say, now stop this. 
Yeah, and this is also kind of the dichotomy that I see when a man complains, it's like grow some balls, quit whining. But when other victims whine, they get rewarded for whining and being a victim and they get all the attention. So I definitely see this yeah, well, double it's standard. Yeah, but part of this one man, one vote system. It would never work in a tribal representation system because in a tribe one would say, listen, darling, calm down. This is not, and they would explain. And they would explain again. And if they wouldn't comply with the tribal culture, they would be sanctioned. And if they still wouldn't, be compli wouldn't comply, they would simply be asked to leave. And if they still wouldn't carry on and they still would not leave out of free will, and then, yes, they may be sacrificed as a sacrifice to the gods to get some good food from the gods. This is how Celtic civilization survived for thousands of years. And it is this civilization that has always been erupted by very temporary out-of-scale larger civilizations. And that started in the Bronze Age. What do you think we have to sacrifice now to get a better society in the future or return back to our closer essence? Well, we'll have to sacrifice our laziness, won't we? We'll have to get our heads, our hands, and our hearts in line. You cannot sit behind a computer all day without doing anything at all with your hands. You cannot sit there as a lone individual doing your thing without communication and living together from your heart with other hearts. So what you will have to sacrifice is exactly that you're so scared to lose. Because everybody has this little system of income, of, of, of in and out, and I've got very bad news. The wind is changing, and if you are not going to change, you'll be thrown with your little vessel against the rocks. Adios. Nobody's going to help you. Have you taken peace with the fact that you're going to die one day? Like, how do you handle the potential of death? Of course. I mean, I'm a doctor, for crying out loud. I mean, at the age of, of, of 21, I had to do an autopsy of somebody who has died who was my age, of, of Hodgkin's leukemia. I mean, they teach you that in, in medicine. In medicine, you know. Your day, this day could be your last one. You're, you're very, in that way, I'm privileged to be. And of course, I have peace with it. That's this part of life. I mean, it's not as if life is all that wonderful, is it, really? I mean, you, you ended up here quite uninvited. You had to fight against people all the time until you die who want to enslave you and who want to steal from you. I mean, is that so much fun? I mean, liberty? They say one finds liberty in death. The liberty from all this nuisance. The hell are the others. And so what you have to do in your life is to create your own heaven. And how do you do that? By setting good boundaries in harmony with nature and in harmony with your own genetic human condition. One thing that I'm sometimes concerned about is sometimes I see you as the valiant Napoleon when you give your speeches or like Louis, Louis de Funet in terms when you're like really excited and passionate. Sometimes I think like, oh my God, Jeff, be mindful of your heart, you know, that it doesn't take overtake. So how do you create, you know, some call, some satisfaction, some, some rest in your life because you're so passionate and so involved and sometimes a bit angry or with these rants. So how do you handle oh, I, no, the nonsense? Yeah, no, 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 no. No, no, stop here. I'm not angry. 
it is mistaken for anger. I mean, mm. 80% of, of communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I would sit here like uh, that plant, like everybody would want me to sit, then actually, you see, what I say, what I convey are insights. They're not words, okay? I want you to see things. I don't want you to hear my words. I want to see you to see my vision, right? And for that, 80% of the communication is non-verbal. With the words, I take your concentration, but the transmission of the vision is beyond words. And you will see, if you remember this talk, you will have an, a, a number of added visions. And if you go back, you will know exactly the moment, to the split second when that vision came to you. And you will see that in all people, this is somewhere else in the line of words. If people want to check out more about what you do, I don't know if there's like also stuff in English or translated in English, but if people want to find out more about what you do, where can they find out more about you? And tell us a bit more about the book that you're writing. Like what's the next concept that you're going to write about? Well, I'm working at it. A book is never written until it's on the shelf. Eh? I may be dead tomorrow. Don't forget that. But I'm now studying very much this. It is something I actually know for a long time. But how do I explain this to people with much less capacity for insight? That, that is the difficulty. And also, we're, we're in, in, in this stage where a number of things will have to be organized in a larger scale, a scale which is larger than is good for our human condition. How are we going to deal with that? And one of the things, with, uh, for instance, I'm working at, this is why these things take time. I want this book to be more than a pamphlet. I, I, wa- I want to, to, to give tools in my book. Tools, not just individuals. My previous books were about tools people could use. Now, I want to create a tool for society. And it should be a tool which, which I've been working in quality systems for, for more than 25 years. Now, in 97, I was the first to get an ISO 9001 complete quality system recognition for an entire medical progress. The first in the bloody world. Right? The second was only five years later. I was five years ahead of my time, and it was in, in, in no other place than Turkey. So I know about quality in medicine. I know about quality systems in general. I have got much more insight than uh, the average in this. Nobody knows this, of course. I, I'm not boasting about it, and it, in, interpersonally, it doesn't help me. But organizational, yes, I can organize whatever you like in a very short space of time using these type of quality models I have. And now I'm working on a quality model, which is, a, in fact, a mathematical model. It's, it's, it's pushing it very far. I, I, I developed this together with a, a fractal mathematician. And we've come up with something that seems to work, at least in industry. And I now want to get this in order for societies to judge their ways of dealing with things. For instance, a problem, how to make positive laws and how to judge whether a positive law is actually in line with natural law or not. Because stupid people who haven't got biological insight don't understand this. So you have to get at them in a sort of more mathematical, reproducible way. That's a bit of, of a translatory process I'm working at. So you could, any, any, any law, for instance, you would say, right, there's a law that, for instance, the shops will have to close half the week, just mm-hmm. throwing something out. You, you, you do that proposition of law, 
into this mathematical model and it will come out as a good idea or a bad idea after having gone through this matrix of double-checking it against natural law. This is my vision. This is the vision I have to develop. But, of course, it's very easy for me to just say yes or no based on natural intelligence. But the problem is the majority of people haven't. And if, you, if, you, if you're in these disputes that are grand scale, above the scale, of, and, 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 and often have, are being run by people with less than average intelligence, with less than average emotional maturity, uh, then it, hopefully it could be used as a tool to convince those people that they really should think twice before doing things that shouldn't be done. And of course, if, if you want to write that in a book, that is a, that is a, that is a working tool. And then it has to be right. I mean, I don't want to go into history as one or other sort of deranged intellectual who was looking for the Holy Grail and never found it. So I, I first have to get this in paper. But that's, the answer to your question is that is what I'm spending most of my time on now. And this is also where I find, to answer the previous question, much of my relaxation. Because after all, the majority of the day, I do absolutely nothing at all. I'm 60 years of age, man. Yeah, but still a fighter. For people who are following you and they want to find a vision, a checklist, some long-term perspectives, what kind of checklist, what kind of tools, what kind of focus would you advise them to look for during these turbulent and insecure times? Well, you don't look for nothing. You change your life. You meditate about... Now, meditate what you have in resources. Financial capitalists, one. But ask yourself the question. What is my intellectual capital? What is my social capital? What is my cultural capital? What is my skills capital? Answer these questions and, and use capitals that will be worth something when the shops are empty, because that won't be too long from now. And then understand that you will be nothing on your own. Then join other groups of people into a geographic location not via internet. You you, you physically go and live in one another's vicinity in a surrounding that has preferably has some culture of uh, self-sustainability, or you could even do that in a part of a city, whatever, use your creativity. But work, spend time together. It may be very difficult for people who are used to spending the most of the time out behind their computer and swiping left and right on screens, but force yourself to spend time with other people to develop your heart and to see that in the diversity of the group you are, you can contribute something of your specific capital and you can profit from things you're lacking from other people's access that specific capital. I mean, you will not be saved by my words. You will be saved by your own deeds. Work on yourself, think critically, act locally, create your own tribe of like-minded people, and then contribute. Thank you so much for bringing in the wisdom on this podcast. And it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Jeff. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. 
Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com academy. Rant over.